Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. Bow with me for prayer. Lord Jesus, we hasten toward that day. It is is nearer than tomorrow. We hasten toward that day when all earthly pleasures and pursuits will appear for the vanity that they are. And it will not matter on that day whether we were rich or poor, whether we were admired or despised as the scum of the earth by everyone. It won't matter whether we were healthy or sick. On that day, it will matter. Did we mourn for sin? Did we hunger and thirst for righteousness? And did we cry out, Jesus Christ, you are the Lord. Have mercy on me. In this hour, as we open your word, prepare us for that day. Amen. Reading from Isaiah 65, and then reading from Revelation chapter 20. Racine Bible Church has a doctrine of end times, the day when Jesus will return, that places us what what we call as a premillennial church. Why do we interpret this this way, and what does it mean? You'll see it in Isaiah 65, and then even more clearly in Revelation chapter 20. Isaiah 65, Isaiah expresses it poetically and prophetically, beginning in verse 17. God says in 65, 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping, or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I'll answer. And while they're yet speaking, I'll hear. And the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And I'd ask you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Usually, both in ABF, like you're in 1 John in one tight little paragraph, and normally here we're in one chapter or a half of a chapter of the book of Isaiah, This morning, with more of a doctrinal overview and a topical message about what we believe about the timing and the day of Christ's return and the millennium, we're going to be in several passages. Revelation 20 will be really an anchor for us. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him. For a thousand years, 
and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from the heavens and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then as John's scroll continues, the very next verse, it's, it's a chapter break in our text. It wasn't in his. says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Here Isaiah speaks in Isaiah 65, and here John sees ahead of time what will happen in the end. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God will happen and be enjoyed on this earth. Satan will be bound. Peace and prosperity will reign on this very earth. And then after 1,000 years of that, the great white throne judgment, and then a new heaven and a new earth. So ultimately, finally, we will be in a new heavens and a new earth. But a premillennial point of view sees that before that new heaven and new earth happens, this, this very same earth will be renewed by the presence of Jesus. And this same earth that saw him crucified and so to speak defeated, even though he wasn't, will see him ruling and reigning. The premillennial view sees the whole thing happening down here on the same earth that we ruined with our sin. The same earth on which the saints were beheaded and their blood soaked into the sand. They will rule and reign on that same earth for 1,000 years. When the Bible talks about what's going to happen in the end, sometimes it just says, 
this age and the age to come too. This age and the age to come. Sometimes the Bible speaks about former ages, plural, and the ages to come, also plural. It's, you got to like marshal it all together. That's why we're not just going to be in one passage today. There's, there's so many different passages that shine a little bit of a different light on it, and you've got to put them all together to, I'm tempted to say you've got to put them all together to get it right, but full disclosure, like, I, I think I'm getting it right, but it's very complicated, <laughs> And of all my doctrinal positions, this is one that I think I'm right, but I, I would be the most willing to be persuaded of another point of view because there's so many moving parts that you've got to put together. The former ages, the ages to come, this age, the age to come. Think about it. So just think about uh, kind, of, kind of three Jesus is, making, Jesus is making all things new. Jesus will make all things new on this earth. And then Jesus will make the new heavens and the new earth. So these three, if we put it in three, there's now and then the future on this planet <clears throat> and then the age to come, the final eternal age. And Jesus is making all things new now. Right now. So the text for that would be like 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. So right now, Jesus makes you new through regeneration, through salvation. We'd say spiritually, you've come alive and you've been made new. The way I put Isaiah 65 and related passages in Revelation 20 together is that <clears throat> there's a second stage where Jesus will return and he'll make everything on this planet for 1,000 years new, new. That's the millennial kingdom. That's what's <clears throat> described in Revelation 20. And then finally, Revelation 21 verse one, a new heavens and a new earth after that 1,000 years will be inaugurated and then the new heavens and the new earth will be new forever. That's like the, <clears throat> the final age that's spoken of, say, in 2 Peter 3, where it says, we are waiting for the day of God on which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and all heavenly bodies will melt away and burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's 2 Peter 3.13, which I match to Revelation 21, verse 1, which happens after that millennial reign on this earth. So Jesus <clears throat> is in the current age making all things new through our regeneration and our salvation. He will make this planet renewed in the millennium and then the new heavens and the new earth will be inaugurated after that. The reason this matters is because it puts your little story into the story of, of what he's doing <clears throat> on all the earth. Another reason I think this matters is because it puts your sort of, so to speak, invisible spiritual newness that you're regenerated. And it ties that to what Jesus will literally do when he renews the lions and the lambs and the wolves and the cobras and this very earth. It's not just sort of ethereal and spiritual. He's going to demonstrate in physicality and materiality 
what he has already done internally inside of your spirit. The current age where we proclaim Jesus, we proclaim his gospel, we uh, support our, our youth ministry to head out on the mission trip. We prayed for them today. We, we're planting Esperanza Viva, the Spanish-speaking church that Jose's heading up. We're worshiping, we're in ABFs because Jesus is making all things new through the declaration of the gospel and regeneration. And we're waiting for his return where he'll show that newness when the kingdom of Jesus rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. So the premillennial point of view, which is Racine Bible's uh, historic and current position, is that the second coming of Christ will bring in a thousand-year reign. And <clears throat> he will reign <clears throat> with the saints on the earth. The same earth that we've lived on and polluted and destroyed, the same earth where the saints were persecuted, will see those saints reigning. And I, I just tell you from the affections of my heart. I love that. I love that John mentions the ones who were beheaded by the perverse Babylonian powers. They're not just like ethereally reigning in heaven. Here, here, here. Same place their heads were lopped off and they were laughed at here when Jesus comes back. I love that. Christ's life and death and resurrection has inaugurated the new age. We're just waiting for the next events to fall. So when you look at the book of Revelation, we're going to be all over the book of Revelation today. Uh, if you want a broad scope, Revelation 6 through Revelation 18 is everything that happens before the second coming. Revelation 6 through Revelation 18 is like the tribulation, all the bad things that happen on the earth. What is the point of the tribulation? The tribulation, you can tell by the name of it, it's a time of trouble. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble because it's the, this is the, the Old Testament name for Israel because the time of tribulation is when God is preparing the whole earth, but in a particular way, he's preparing Israel for the return of her king. And so the tribulation happens, and then that's Revelation, say, 6 through 18. Revelation 19 is the second coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus. And then Revelation 20 is his millennial reign from his throne in Jerusalem once he lands on the earth. You say, where, where do we fit in that? Well, this is where, uh, I, if you want, you could turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, where we get this idea of the rapture and that the church is protected or pre-tribulationally were taken out before this tribulation happens. I find more evidence for this position of a pre-tribulational rapture in the books of Thessalonians than I do in the book of Revelation. Not that, not that Revelation contradicts it, but there's just more explicit evidence for it in, Thess in First and Second Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians 4, if you ask me, what's the next event that we're waiting for? The next event that we're waiting for is this rapture of the church. 1 Thess 4, 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. 
For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So all the saints who have died and all the saints who are alive on the earth, that moment before that seven-year tribulation begins, they'll all be caught up to be with Jesus. We'll stay with Jesus for those, that seven-year tribulation. And then when he returns at the close of the tribulation, we will come back with him to rule and reign with him. So where will we be, the church, where will we be during the millennium? This is one thing that makes people go, really, what? Is uh, at the end of the tribulation, because the tribulation is a time, you know, remember, to prepare the world for the return of Christ, and there are all these, uh, these verses like in Matthew 24 where he says, you know, uh, uh, run to the hills and hide and be ready for him. There will still be living, breathing believers on the earth who have come to Christ basically during that tribulation time. There, there will be great destruction, but there will also be revival. And those, those who live through the tribulation will enter the millennium in their earthly bodies. We from the church age who have been raptured, we will come back with Jesus and enter the millennium in our glorified bodies. So it's like this, it's like this in-between, like right now everybody's in earthly bodies. In that in-between millennium, there'll be some in glorified and some in regular bodies. And then the 21-1, the new heavens, the new earth, will all be in those resurrected bodies. So Revelation 19, the second coming of Jesus. Revelation 20 is the millennium. Then you see at the, at the end of the millennium, Satan is unbound. You have that final battle and that great white throne judgment. I know that's a lot, and we're just trying to give, a, give an overview of where our position is. You gotta put a whole bunch of different scriptures together. If you're, if you're uh, still in Revelation 20, you see, this is why we understand there are two resurrections There's the first resurrection, John calls it, in Revelation 20, verse 4. I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom authority had been committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, the tribulation, and and for the word of God, and for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the, he says in verse six, this is the first resurrection. He says in verse five, the first resurrection. He says again in verse six, the first resurrection. And then we see that there's a second resurrection. You see it in uh, verses 12 and 13 of also of Revelation 20. After the millennium is over, we have this second resurrection, which is mostly the resurrection of the unsaved, where he says in verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, stand before the throne. The books were open and they're judged. And you see that their judgment is, is just. God has recorded everything that they've done, the things that they've done, the motives from which they did it. This is the second judgment and it's a judgment unto death. And then the eternal, the eternal state with the, in chapter 21, the new heavens and the new earth. Just to mention church, don't miss, don't miss this. Uh, it is appointed for man to die once and after this comes judgment. 
if there was no such thing as death, I'm not sure what we would be doing up here preaching the gospel. What is the gospel but deliverance from sin and judgment and death? And this is why we give in the offering. This is why we send our middle schoolers out and our high schoolers out on mission trips. This is why it matters. I'm just pleading with you, don't, don't let a week or, or certainly not a, ever a month go by when you don't speak a gospel word to somebody. Just ask them, what do you, what do you think happens after we die? Just say to them as it comes up in conversation, you know, I want to tell you honestly, I'm not afraid to die, and this is why. This matters because that first resurrection is coming, the resurrection unto life, and that second resurrection is coming, the resurrection unto death, unto judgment. And we plead with people before it's too late because that's, that's the reality of the gospel. So the living Christians who were on the earth at the beginning of the millennium, say that came to Christ during the tribulation, they'll start in their earthly bodies to live in this thousand years. We will be here ruling and reigning with Christ in our glorified bodies. But what Isaiah 65 describes and what Revelation 20 describes is that babies will be born and life will go on on the planet because we're not in the new heavens and the new earth where no babies are born. We're still on this earth. So the people who turn to Christ as Messiah, they're talked to, during the tribulation, they're talked about like in Zechariah 14, they're talked about in Matthew 24. They begin the millennium in their normal earthly bodies and they populate the earth. Because Jesus is here, and we saw this I think last week when we looked at Isaiah 65, the curse is beginning to be rolled back. So the lion dwells with the lamb, the infant is safe in front of the viper's den and longevity and all the blessings that are like, like, a, like Eden before the fall. That's what's described in, in these descriptions of what it's like to, to live on the earth while Jesus is here. Jesus' reign is a reign of righteousness and peace. This is something to daydream about. Jesus' reign, though I picked those two words biblically, they're significant. Jesus' reign is a reign of righteousness and peace. And the second is the fruit of the first. There can be no peace without righteousness. This, this is our world's whole problem. This is why John Lennon never got it right. We lo the longing for peace, I, I'm with you on that, but there can be no peace without righteousness, without righteousness. And so these descriptions of what it's like to, to live on a planet that is ruled by Jesus in righteousness and peace. One of our favorite little metaphors, you know, or, or little symbols from the Old Testament, it comes from Micah 4. It says, he shall judge in righteousness and all of the nations shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nope. There's not going to be any blue star mothers anymore. All that war, all that sorrow, it's over. It's over. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. This happens for that thousand years. Now, because it's this in-between time and Jesus wants to finally validate his victory, it says in the end of Revelation 20 that when he, un, when he looses Satan, there'll be that final war and judgment. 
But it even describes it in Revelation 20 that it's really not much of a war because Jesus is there, it, it ends. So if this is, you know, with a, with a real broad brush, how we put some of these key passages together, the thing to talk about now, maybe three brief answers to this is, uh, so what? So what? First, the first so what is, uh, I guess you could just write down the word story. The, the significant so what here is that if you neglect an accurate understanding of end times doctrine, you have missed the best part of the story. And who wants to go to bed before the story's over? <laughs> you want to know, did that dragon get it or not? Is that beautiful princess happily ever after or not? This is the best part of the story. And I want you to see the whole story of the Bible. It is sometimes said, not by me, but it is sometimes said that trying to figure out the millennium, whether your church is pre-millennial or not, is like sort of a waste because it's from one chapter, Revelation 20, in one book that is notorious for symbols and numbers that mean other things than they really mean. The reason I would never say that is because the doctrine of Jesus' reign on this earth is in no way limited to a few verses in Revelation 20. It is all over the place. There are so many prophecies in the Old Testament that require one of two things. Either the promises that were made to, it, to Israel were conditional and those are never going to be fulfilled or they're somehow spiritualized and they just belong to the church or they, will, they haven't yet been fulfilled so they will be fulfilled when Jesus returns. Somebody said that uh, for every one reference the Bible makes to the first coming of Christ, the Bible makes eight references to the second coming of Christ. I didn't check that, but it, it passes the smell test to me. It says a lot more about the second coming. So you, you can't neglect that significant of a part of the story by just saying, well, I don't know what I believe. Well, uh, you know, figure it out. Take a little time and figure it out. It's worth it. It's worth it. From the, from, from basically from Genesis 1, 26 through 28, when God said to the man and the woman, I want you to exercise dominion on the earth so that the earth can see righteousness and peace. We've, we've failed to do that. We will finally do that with Jesus in the millennium from the Abrahamic covenant where the, the seed of Israel is promised. The seed of Abram is promised a land and a seed and a blessing. All the Old Testament vicissitudes and violence that they went through, those, those were never actually, literally, completely fulfilled, not even in the book of Joshua. They will be fulfilled in Revelation 20 in accordance with God's promise. Psalm 2. I don't think, it's, I don't think that it's, it's just a poetic expression when it says that Jesus will rule the world. I think it's, it's describing the literal truth right here. He's going to rule. So the first reason this matters is because you can see the whole story of the Bible. The whole story of the Bible. Second, I guess I would just use the word perspective. Perspective between time and eternity. Perspective between time and eternity. Or if you want to write it with capitals and lowercase, perspective between lowercase this day and capital that day. 
Perspective between this day and that day. Perspective between time and eternity. I just visited my grandkids. Bible church pastors are notorious for telling stories about their dogs and their grandkids. I won't, I won't bore you with my grandkids. Um, uh, not that my grandkids could ever bore anybody. They're the best. But anyway, uh, I don't want to... I, I don't want to get weepy, so I'm just going to blast through this. The, the day that I left, uh, Clive is so little, he doesn't know what's what. But Spencer and Trixie, especially Trixie, was like really weepy that I was leaving. And she's like, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? When are you coming back? And the problem is, three, four, five-year-olds, they don't understand time. I'm like... Uh, October, I might as well have said when I complete the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs. It just didn't, it just didn't, there was just no, it was like, what? You know? when are you coming back? When you shelter in Helm's Deep and you look to the east, I shall arise. Like, it's like, I could have said, I could have said Christmas, it wouldn't have meant anything. Like, they just don't understand time. Say something directly to the unbelievers, and I do not mean this as an insult. I mean this as a help. Unbelievers are not wise enough to understand what time is because they do not dwell in the fear of the Lord. It is believers who have the wisdom to understand what this day means because we understand by the fear of the Lord what that day means means. Believers have a wise perspective on the difference between time and eternity. Old Scottish pastor said, the children of this world can see no further than the nearest side of time. Oh, but the believer can see the far side of eternity. That's, that's a, I'm, I'm a thousand percent in on that. The children of this world can only see the nearest side of time, but the believer can see the further side of eternity. Unbelievers can see no further than, than time, than what's going to happen right here and now. That's why in a couple of places in the Gospels, Jesus says things like, well, like, if you do good because you want to get good back from it, that's what the unbelievers do. Like, if you worry about people when they get sick, well, that's what the unbelievers do. Like, this, these are, this, this is common reality for humanity. But it's the believers who see the further side of time. One definition of a Christian that has always rung in my mind, I might have heard it from Martin Lloyd-Jones, I can't remember, was that a Christian man or woman is one who is certain about the ultimate even though they might be uncertain about the immediate. A Christian man or woman is certain about the ultimate, even if they might be uncertain about the immediate. And I, I understand you're going to go into your ABFs and you're going to pray for each other based on what's happening in the immediate, like someone's going to have surgery, someone's marriage is falling apart. These things matter. 
I'm not saying Christians don't think the immediate matters at all, but what I am saying is a Christian can live with uncertainty about the immediate because the Christian has certainty about the ultimate. Is that not what he is arguing from, an, from eschatology to practical grieving in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, don't grieve like those who have no hope, who can only see the near side of eternity. You grieve, but not as those who have no hope because you see what's coming. This perspective between time and eternity. So important. And then third, the third reason this matters is not one word, it's three words. And it's these three words. Do not bow. You hear me? Do not bow. We've been a lot of places. I just ask you to turn one more place, Revelation 18. Revelation 18, the last, the, if, if, if you take my scheme of Revelation that's 6 through 18 is everything that happens before Jesus comes back and 19 is his second coming. So Revelation 18 is like the, the culmination of it. And the point here is that believers in Jesus do not bow to Babylon. That's the point. Believers in Jesus do not bow to Babylon because Babylon cannot frighten us because Babylon cannot take away from us that which is ultimate. Babylon cannot frighten us because Babylon cannot take away from us that which is ultimate. And Babylon cannot bribe us. Babylon cannot woo us because Babylon cannot give us anything that's better than what we are getting. Do not bow. Do not bow. So I reread the book of Revelation a couple of times in preparation for this message, and I just got, I just got so thrilled by Revelation uh, 18. Look what he says. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. If you read that as if it's bad news, you, you're not reading the same Bible I am. He's like, finally, finally, Babylon's fallen. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. All the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. We're in July. For some reason, all the major companies count June as Pride Month, where we take pride in our perversions. It's like, this is Babylon. Like, don't you think, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying if you should boycott something or not, but I'm just like, if, if you really tried to figure out what corporations profit on injustice and what corporations promote perversion and wickedness, I don't think you could go into the Piggly Wiggly and buy corn or diapers or like anything. Like, like it, it's like everything's Babylon. Everywhere you turn, it's all, it's all, it just seems like it's all Babylon. But what he says, what hit me when I read this, what hit me when I read this was, uh, look at, uh, yeah, Revelation 18, look at verse eight. 
For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she'll be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judged her. And the kings of the earth, it says in verse 9, who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And that little phrase, for in a single hour your judgment has come, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The reason I point that out as significant is because, where did I read that? Verse 10. Now look at verse 16. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet with jewels and pearls. Verse 17, for in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And the shipmasters and the seafaring men, they cried out at the smoke of her burning. Verse 19, they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all the ships at sea grew by her wealth. For in a single hour, she's been laid waste. Three times, And the number three is very significant in the book of Revelation. Three times, John emphasizes, in a single hour, in a single hour, in a single hour. Why this emphasis? Because from where we look on the near side of time, Babylon appears indestructible. They've got all the money. They've got all the attractive people in Hollywood. They've got everything. And it seems like when we look at the near side of time, it's like, A thousand years could go by and nothing would happen to them because they're the strongest. But he says, Babylon is such a paper tiger that in an hour, in an hour, Berkshire Hathaway, Google, Apple, in an hour, it's like they were never even there. So isn't the point that the tables are going to turn so fast in the end. It's going to happen so suddenly that the Christians, whether truly Christians or so-called, the so-called Christians who are currently afraid of Babylon and bowing down to the regime, just like that, they're going to see that they're on the losing side of history. It is the Christians who refuse to bow. It is the Christians who see not only the near side of time, but the far side of eternity, who know there's no way I could bow to Babylon because then I would be on the losing side of history and I don't want to be on that side because Jesus rules and reigns. This is the kind of prophetic promise that makes Daniel... Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. This is the kind of promise that makes Christians who love Jesus so much that they do not love their lives even unto death. Because if we have Jesus, we have no fear of death. We have no fear of death. These are the kinds of prophetic promises that swallow up fear. So church, have that perspective And do not bow because Jesus is king. We bow only to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you in prayer. 
and your church confesses that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. We ask you for wisdom to live in this world where Babylon seems to rule and reign. We ask that you would enable us to come out from her and be separate, not be tainted by sin and unholiness and lasciviousness and perversion. We ask that you would make us bold to proclaim your word and your gospel. We ask Jesus that we would see you coming in the clouds. May it be soon. Jesus Christ be glorified in your church. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.